Hey Fools, Anne Henry here with The Motley Fool. Industry focus is on vacation today, but we've still got something special in store for you. Please enjoy this interview we did recently with the Container Store CEO and Fool friend, Kip Tyndall. And don't fret, we'll be back tomorrow with our regularly scheduled programming. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Hi, Fools. We are here with Kip Tendall, who is the CEO, chairman, and co-founder of the Container Store. Um, this is Kip's third or fourth visit to The Motley Fool, and we're always pleased to have him. Um, and he has just written a book called Uncontainable, and he shares how he's built a, bu- a business where everyone associated with that business can thrive using the Container Store's seven foundation principles and the tenets of conscious capitalism. Please welcome Kip Tindall. Thanks. So happy to be here again. It's really great for you to be here. Can you just give us a quick um, overview of why you decided to write a book? Huh. Well, I mean, uh, really the employees um, have been wanting that for a long, long time. And, you know, it just seemed like a lot of self-focus. And so I was really not wanting to do it. There certainly wasn't time to do it. You know, retail, I mean, gosh, you work, you blur the distinction between work and play, and you wind up working <laughs> seven or eighty hours a week, so how can you write a book? Uh, it's, uh, it is very time-consuming. Uh, Casey Schilling uh, is a co-author on the thing, co-writer on the thing. She's been with the company for 17 or 18 years, and we've been doing um, culture stuff and writing speeches together and doing, you know, she knows what I want to say better than I do. And then a guy named Paul Keegan uh, so I found out that you can get help writing a book, and, and then and, and, and it's still kind of your book. As she uh, and uh, that helped a lot, just being able to fit it in, uh, sort of scheduling wise. But it's a book about the philosophy, uh, the, the business philosophy of the Container Store, and our our people are so passionate about it. They really wanted that uh, written down. Uh, I'm very very passionate about conscious capitalism. Our philosophies, the foundation principles, are exactly the same as conscious capitalism. So. Like your Motley Fool board of director, uh, John Mackey, he and I are out there at uh, uh, every opportunity when we have a moment to do it, uh, spreading the word of conscious capitalism. And I think it's very beneficial to both Whole Foods and the Container Store to be known as you know, leading examples of that business philosophy. And this book uh, expresses uh, a lot of that. And I tell you, it's weird writing a, a book, your first book, because suddenly everybody you love and respect is reading your book, and you're like, oh, my God. And so the, the first person that called me about, Herb Kelleher, who's a real hero of mine, you know, Herb told me 30 years ago, Kip, you can build a much better organization on love than you can fear. And I went, wow. You know, but he calls, and he loved the book. He'd already read it, and it's just so personal. It's so, so interesting. But um, so I wrote the book, or we wrote the book, because um, we felt like that um, the Container Store and other conscious capitalist companies serve as a model to uh, other entrepreneurs and other businesses. Several times a week now I have somebody say, I have this mattress company in Atlanta, and it's completely designed around your foundation principles. And I'm like, really? Wow. (laughs) I think that's great, and I think I really appreciate that you did take time to spell it out because I think we as a company, The Motley Fool has benefited a lot just from knowing the container store and knowing you uh, over the past couple of years. Um, And I think the fact that now everybody can see those 
tenants kind of spelled out and, and in such a wonderful and eloquent way, I think is um, wonderful. And we're also a company that embraces conscious capitalism. In Absolutely. Fact. Um, and uh, David and Tom Gardner, I think, are currently in Texas at the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit. Um, can you talk a little bit about the stakeholders of um, the Container Store? Who are your stakeholders and how you look at it? Well, the stakeholder model of conscious capitalism can really be broad. It, it can include the vendor to the school that your child attends. And, you know, I mean, the ripple effect of, uh, of how um, well a business does impacts a lot of people. But the primary stakeholders at the container store, we, uh, the, the, the stakeholder, we're an employee first culture. So we try to take care of the employee better than anybody else takes care of their employee. And if you do that, they're going to take care of the customer than anybody else, better than anybody else. And if those two are happy, the shareholders got to be happy. And people that practice conscious capitalism are always talking about the debate that um, uh, Milton Friedman and John Mackey had, where Milton said, "Well, the only reason a corporation exists is to maximize the return of the shareholder." And we're like, "You know what, Milton? I know you won a Nobel Prize and everything, but I think we're saying the same thing here. If if um, if you take better care of the employee than anyone else, she'll take better care of the customer than anybody else, and then the uh, shareholder's got to be ecstatic, just like they're both ecstatic. But if you myopically focus only on the shareholder, then the magic is lost. Employees aren't happy, customers aren't happy, shareholders aren't happy. So I don't think we disagree so much with Milton Friedman. I've in talking about that, I've been contacted by the Milton Friedman Association and all that. I said, no, I actually think we agree. It's just how we go about it. You know, the means to the end are different. And I happen to be um, in two of your stakeholder groups. I am both probably your target demographic as a 31-year-old mom of two uh, children that tripped over a lacrosse stick on my way out the door this morning. Help me with that. And um, I'm also a shareholder, um, in full disclosure, of the Container Store. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, the past week and um, stock returns. And I will, in full disclosure, and also because this is probably going out to um, our members, I bought in January at $43. And so stock closed yesterday at 16 Can you give me some reinsurance? Well, 16 is lower than 43. And, um, In fact, I need over 200% returns just to get back to even at this point. Mm -hmm. Well, it has been an interesting week. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, the quarter that we just reported, comp store sales were down four-tenths of 1%. And um, the stock um, reacted to that very, very uh, strongly. Um, but, you know, we have never uh, felt more confident about our business. We've never felt more confident about the... Um, even the medium term, much less just the long term of our business. Uh, employee morale is at an all-time high in our estimation. Our customers love us more than ever. Um, there's been many times in the 36-year um, history of the container store where comp store sales were a, a, a tiny bit lower or a tiny bit higher than we thought they were going to be. And this has been one of those since since about the late spring, when the weather cleared up for most retailers, comp store sales have been a little bit more stubborn than we expected. On the other hand, comp store sales were down four-tenths of one percent, but uh, uh, earnings were up 36 or 37 percent. You know, gross margins very strong. Uh, SG&A is very strong. Um, new store growth is very strong. We're growing at about 12 percent uh, square footage growth. And so... Um, we are looking under every rock uh, to, to, to make that comp store differential. Um, 
every time comp store sales are surprisingly high or low throughout our history, they kind of go back to the medium, to, 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 to the middle a little bit uh, anyway, but we're not sitting around waiting for that to happen. Uh, we have um, the look under every rock to make every aspect of the business to increase that traffic to where that customer comes back or shops one more time a year. And then we have three really big major initiatives, uh, a loyalty program for the first time in our history, a uh, service where we come to your home and do all of your closets or all of your pantries or your garage or whatever, and then the introduction, the biggest merchandising in, uh, uh, initiative of our history where we, Alpha is such a great closet, it's 24% of our sales, but a lot of people want this more built-in, melamine, wooden look closet, and we have always resisted offering that because we own the Alpha factory. We want, no, buy Alpha. Some people don't want Alpha. Some people want this, this other uh, product line. So we have spent the last couple of years developing the finest, solid, built-in, custom um, uh, closet system. We call it TCS Closets. It's more expensive than Alpha. It's like the Lexus to the Toyota. And um, uh, we're more excited about it than any merchandising initiative we've ever done. The, the, the service when we go in your home is about maybe 40% rolled out. It's gonna, it's gonna uh, 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 come to DC soon, in the fall, uh, November? End of this month, DC. Yeah, so where, where it is, the average ticket's $2,000. You know, there's only two components to comp store sales. There's traffic and average ticket. So the average ticket's 60 bucks. And so uh, this thing is $2,000. And then the TCS closets, uh, is, is not even introduced yet. Uh, it will be introduced um, here in just... Um, well, no, it would be introduced... Okay, this November, so we're just about finally to, to introduce it. So these are big, hairy initiatives. Uh, oh, the average ticket to the TCS closet thing, we believe, will be even a lot greater than the $2,000. But when you're trying to impact a $60 average ticket and you're adding giant initiatives that are in the thousands of dollars, you really impact uh, uh, average ticket very quickly. And then the POP program is rolled out, um, but only since July nationwide. We already have a million POP stars. That's what you are when you join the POP program. 50% uh, of our sales are now uh, from uh, uh, POP stars. From pop. So that affinity program, that loyalty program is, is going uh, uh, as we have planned. We're not ready to announce the metrics on that, but we're very hopeful. I think the easiest way to raise traffic is 30% of our customers give us 83% of our sales. The person that's most likely to shop with you one more time a year is that 30%. And so this, the reason we didn't do a loyalty program for so long is because we thought that most businesses give away too much gross margin on their loyalty program. But what we found in interviewing all of our customers and taking a long time to do it is they don't really want a discount as much as they want more information, more communication, more love, more hugs. Your favorite brands, you don't just want a discount from them. You want my favorite restaurant. I'm a big food guy, so my favorite restaurant, I want to be able to talk to the chef. I want to be able to uh, learn about how he prepares my favorite dish. I want hugs and love and communication. Brands I don't care about, I just want a discount. I don't want a hug from that brand, I just want a discount, but I do want a hug from that. So, um, you know, that we feel like is, is, is already uh, moving the needle a lot on, on traffic. So, yes, it has been uh, tumultuous if we were, uh, but we've never felt better about our, our business model. We've never felt uh, better about everything that we're doing. 
Two years ago, this little blip on comp store sales wouldn't have even particularly bothered us. But now it bothers us because you bought it 42 or 43. I mean, you know, my Ouch. best friends, you know, I mean, it's, we, um, uh, but what I can tell you is that uh, 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 we, we could not be more confident about, and, and every week, every month, every, every quarter, these three big initiatives are rolled out that much farther. So we feel very, very uh, good about the future. We're not just talking about long, long term. We're talking about even sort of medium term, sort of even less than medium term. And um, uh, we are diligently turning over every rock to, uh, what we need to add is about two points of, of traffic as quickly as possible. So we're, we're feeling good about the holiday season ahead uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, and by then, I think we'll also have these initiatives rolled out a little bit, a little bit farther and they make a difference each new store that gets added on. And does that answer the question a little bit? Absolutely. And it's been it's been fun in New York the last three days answering <laughs> I that question. I, I hope I'm getting better at answering the question. <laughs> but but you know, it's it's conscious capitalism. It's not quarterly capitalism. And you know, we have been doing this for 36 years. We have seen this type of thing uh, quite a few times in the past, and uh, we've learned some things in 36 years. And we are on it, dog on it. And you know, I. Uh, I can't tell you how emotional it is to know that you bought it at that price and it's there, but um, I also can't tell you how confident I am in the long-term stock performance. So the Tom Gardner, um, one of his key tenants in his everlasting portfolio is a minimum five-year holding period, and I certainly am on for that. And so I am 10 months into this. Let's talk again in uh, about four and a half years. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds so good. J Jim Senegal tells me, don't care about the stock price for 10 years. Or just look at 10 years out. I'm like, no, I care about what happened this week, too. <laughs> so. Um, so let's get back to the book just a little bit. Um, it is such a great book, and I love how um, you've taken each of your foundation principles and laid them out in a way that shows how they really make a difference to your company and to the different stakeholders of your company. Um, they are numbered in there. Are they prioritized within the container store, or are you just numbered them for sake of organization within the book? Yeah, I, I don't, they're, they're not really, I don't know. Uh, I can present an argument that any, of the found, any one of the foundation principles is the most important, and so they're not really prioritized like that. Probably, everybody wants to know, well, so how do you do the culture thing? How can I make my business more like that? Uh, you know, um, people join the company and they never leave. I mean, we have a single-digit turnover in an industry that, that averages triple-digit turnover. How do you how do you do that? Um, and what I've figured out is maybe the two most important things when it comes to uh, being a great place to work are number one the the foundation principles one equals three. You know, one great person can do the uh, business productivity of three good people. And the reason that's so important there's a lot of reasons it's so important. Um, uh, great customer service, great productivity, great innovation, great intelligence, great social skills. But maybe the most important is because uh, you want to hire people that your existing employees love to work with, that they think are great. And that's about the most important workplace benefit you can get. Who, who wants to work with a bunch of people that you don't respect or you don't think are any good or aren't engaged? Uh, if we created a golf team, let's get Phil Mickelson on the golf team and then we'll feel really great about being on that team. And you know, I think you have a big moral obligation if you're somebody's employer to make sure that they 
look forward to getting out of bed and coming to work in the morning and getting to work with the kind of people you get to work with here or uh, I get to work with at the container store. Boy, it's, 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 it, it's, it's a great, great, great benefit. And um, it is so cool to be a team. It's so cool to respect and love and have the backs of everybody you, you, you work with. That's a great place to work. It can be like puppy love, you know, in the fifth grade uh, where that girl liked you. And she was the coolest girl in the whole school, and you couldn't believe she liked you. But, boy, it sure made you want to go to school in the morning, you know. I mean, <laughs> and, um, and then the other one's communication. Communication and leadership are the same thing. That's another foundation principle. Um, uh, we just communicate. We think communication can solve just about anything. And so we spend more time and effort making sure that everybody understands everything than most. It's time-consuming. It's difficult. To communicate is compassionate. To not communicate is not, is not compassionate. Uh, people are starving for transparency. Uh, employees are starving for transparency. I mean, I pick friends and employees based on the same thing, how transparent they are. I think, I think life is too short for opaque people. And um, uh, so every foundation principle is important, but if you really just want to, if you if, you, if your employees know that everything is communicated to them, um, and if they know that also the people they get to work with are really important to them. People want to go to work in the morning and create great things and do great things with people they really admire and, and, and love working with, and they'll go home, go home and feeling, feeling great about that. So those are the two I would prioritize. But it's like <laughs> prioritizing your kids or something, isn't it? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, we do have used to have an employee who always who had four children, and he always had a list of who was at the top, and that always was a little weird. And it changed around. It changed around as yeah. long as it, he says, as long as it keeps changing, we're okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, can you talk a little bit about communication as leadership? And you're a growing company. You're adding new stores. You're adding new locations. You mentioned earlier um, at lunch that you are traveling all the time. Can you talk a little bit about how you scale communication as you grow? Well, we just, uh, we just aren't afraid of it, and we believe in it more than anybody else, so we spend more time, money, and effort on it. Uh, I think it just gives all your uh, coworkers and employees wings, you know, to, to, to communicate it. Um, uh, becoming a public company had its challenges on that. You can't communicate everything to every employee as, uh, uh, like you used to because of the whole insider trading rules, so we, um, that is something that we're very, very uh, cautious about, of course. It's, we had to modify the way that we did that. Uh, we have a lot of insiders. Every store manager is. It's a bigger group than, you know, than most companies. You've got to know the score of the game. If you're, if, if you're going down the field trying to score the winning touchdown in the final two minutes, and there's two guys on the bench that are not engaged and don't even know what the score is, they can't help with that giant you know, uh, thing. So. Knowing the metrics, knowing all the information is, is, is helpful. So that, that's been challenging, but I think we've overcome that. I think our employees feel absolutely uh, just as well communicated now that we're public as they did, they did private. Um, we do it, we use every medium. Uh, we're, we're, we are told by the NRF and Leonard Green, our financial partners and a lot of other organizations that uh, they think that we're the best among our peers on technology. You know, it's just a, a great strength that we have. And technology helps you communicate a lot. And um, I think technology is the key to customer service, but technology is also the key to, uh, uh, to communication. 
So um, we have a lot of um, these types of meetings. Um, we have meetings where uh, culture, uh, the John Mackey's of the world will come talk to our employees much as much as you do uh, here as well. Um, we have company calls where everybody in the company is listening to a call where we're trying to discuss whatever's going on at that point in time, particularly like after we do a quarterly uh, earnings call, uh, we have a company call where we talk to all of our employees about that and make sure that they understand. You know, they need to understand what happened to the stock this week, right? And they need to know how we feel about that. And it is so important. And we do the same thing with vendors. We do the same thing with all of our stakeholders. We, we are just... Um, you know, uh, nuts about about communication. So size doesn't really get in the way of that. Um, you know, it's, um, yeah. So I had the privilege about two years ago of going to the Conscious Capitalism Conference and watching on stage you conduct a roundtable that had all of your stakeholders there. And I think... Uh, San Francisco? It was in San Francisco, yeah. And it was an amazing discussion um, and the person I was sitting next to where we were really like did did Kip pay them to do this just because it was the first time I really understood fully how much you live the principle of fill the other guy's basket to the brim um, because you had a supplier up there you had an employee up there you had a customer up there and they were all as evangelical about the container store as the other one. And to hear the supplier up there, I think I expect that from your customers and I think I expect that from such a great place to work. But to have your supplier up there singing your praises of what it feels like to supply the container store was really eye-opening to me. Can you talk a little bit how, about how you serve that stakeholder? What would you think if I read Chet's uh, email? Please. We have Chet's email coming right now. Hot off the presses. Oh, we have Audrey here. Okay. <laughs> Who's going to read? Hey. So this is our, this is our vendor, you know, stakeholder. Uh, I love... Here, you need that so they can see you on the camera. I love, uh, you know, the, the, the vendor thing. You can't tell the difference between an employee and a vendor. So, you know, the Container Store has about the most emotional week we've ever had here. You know, we're feeling great about everything. And then... Um, uh, you just heard her question, so I thought, well, that, that guy who was the stakeholder uh, vendor just sent me an email yesterday, and here's what it said. And he's our number two vendor, so pretty important. Um, and he was at the Conscious Capitalism Summit this week um, there in Austin, too. So, hi, Kip. Team Iris is with you all the way. We are so proud and humbled to be mentioned in your wonderful book. It will be required reading for all of our associates, providing wisdom and inspiration as we continue our journey to become a better conscious capitalism organization. You are our hero, Kip. <laughs> I can't imagine... <laughs> I can't imagine the range of emotions you have experienced this week. Just know this. We are so privileged to be a part of your great company. We will do everything possible as a dedicated and passionate stakeholder to help you in any way we can any way we can, honoring our higher purpose to delight your customers with great products to enhance and improve everyday living. You always say the best is yet to come. I truly believe this with all my heart. I am with you every step of this journey. Let's knock it out of the park in Q4. Chet. Isn't that amazing? Who else could have that type of an email from a supplier? And so 
talk a little bit, I mean, specifically about that relationship. What is it about that relationship that has a supplier saying, I am on your side? Well, they weren't always our number two vendor. We just uh, created, creatively crafted that mutually beneficial relationship with that vendor. Um, if you're a small retailer, you can't beat the mass merchants in volume. So a great way to go about it is to have a better relationship with your manufacturers than they do. And some of those mass merchants, it's easy to have better relationships with the, with the vendor than, than they do. And then you creatively craft that mutually beneficial relationship. One of the foundation principles is fill the other guy's basket to the brim. Making money then becomes an easy proposition. A notable thing, um, this is Iris, and it's uh, kind of stackable plastic. They're the best at translucent, high-quality plastic uh, uh, stuff in the world. Um, um, their factory was in Wisconsin, and our distribution center, our million-square-foot distribution center is in Dallas. This was bulky, freight-intensive stuff. The freight ran 17% to get it from Wisconsin to Dallas. And we said, okay, we're creatively crafting a mutually beneficial relationship here. What, what, what can we do? Let's build a factory in Dallas, right next to our distribution center, you know? And, and um, um, they did that. I mean, the expense, they built an entire factory uh, right next to our distribution center, and they sell to other people, but primarily they sell to us, and our sales went through the roof because we were, you know, trying to reward uh, them for that. That's, that's something that I'm actually very interested in, getting more and more of our manufacturers to build facilities close to our distribution facilities so we can raise the annual turn uh, on, on those products and just cross-dock everything. We cross-dock everything on Iris. Um, uh, annual turn on Iris is probably in the mid-40s times a year or something. And so it takes a lot of trust to build a factory. You don't want to build that factory and then have a container store discontinue the product, right? But they had our word that we were going to, you know, long-term partners and, and do that. We, um, this company's based in Sendai, Japan, and that's right where the um, tsunami hit and all of that, and they lost some uh, workers, and we spent a lot of time over there working with them, a lot of cultural exchange stuff. We've introduced the concept of hiring women for important positions to this Japanese company. You know, they needed some of that, and, and a lot of things, but uh, um, our employees, um, you know, raised... Uh, you know, it's $100,000, but it's $100,000 raised from our employees, not our customers, to help the tsunami victims, you know. And it's, it's, uh, it is so fun to create business relationships like that, and you're able to create product together that is exclusive to the container store. Uh, nobody else has it. Uh, it's high margin. It sells better than anything else. And you get the best manufacturers of whatever, and then you create product together for 10, 20, 30 years. If it's wood, you do it in Estonia. If it's, you know, you do it all over the world. Uh, you get to be great friends. You travel the world together. And, and you, there's no reason for the container store to exist if we're just selling what everybody else does. And so, and the trust, and the, um, it is the epitome of conscious capitalism, you know, stakeholder uh, model. So I think you have a good feel for the way our employees feel about us. Um, that was a nice little illustration of the way the vendors feel about it. And there's nothing particularly unusual about, um, you know, about Chet. I mean, it's, uh, my wife happens to be the, the, the chief merchant, so we get to do a lot of the focus on that. But can you see what a competitive advantage that is? The, 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 the things that you get from the vendors, 
And those relationships allow you to be price competitive with even the biggest mass merchants on those products that are not exclusive to us. Because we have to carry some of those products too. So. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, about principle number six? Intuition does not come to an unprepared mind. You need to train before it happens. And, the, and how you help build that intuition into, your, into each of your employees. Well, we, we, we have 263 hours of formal training for each first-year employee. The industry average is about eight. 263 is more than eight. And is and that 263 for, like, sales training or just teaching them about each of the products mm -hmm. and making sure they know the line? A lot of it is cultural training. Uh, a lot of it is cultural. A lot of it is cap uh, conscious capitalist training. Uh, there's product training. There's everything. Uh, how to operate the register, uh, everything. But 263 versus an average of eight um, has a lot to do. There's nothing worse than working on a retail sales floor and not knowing anything about what you're talking to the customer about. That is torture. And so it has a lot to do with the single-digit turnover versus a triple-digit uh, 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 industry average. But... Um, Ah, where, which one are we on? Where are we going? <laughs> Intuition. The end of the quarterly week, you know. So, you know the quarterly <laughs> it's true. Aftermath. Um, just talk about whatever you want to, Kip. We just we no, will uh, the, go wherever you want to go. That's how you leverage your, your, your unbelievable investment in training. Some really smart person once said that intuition is merely the sum total of, of your life experience. And so we're like, well, then why would you leave it at home when you come to work? And men think it's something that women should do, and they should be just logical. They should never use their intuition, and all that's crazy. But intuition is more mistake-prone than logic in work, and so most people are afraid to use it. You'll never get all your training investment back unless you create an environment that's safe enough for them to reach out, use their intuition. That's when you get innovation. That's when you get stretch uh, 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 when I snow ski, I don't fall for four days in a row. I just, I'm not going to fall. But I'm not, really, I'm not really stretching, am I? I mean, I'm just afraid of falling, so uh, I'm not skiing as well as I, I could or should. And so we have to create a workplace where people are not so afraid of making a mistake that they're not using their intuition. And, and the other thing is, the more you know about a given subject matter, the better tool your intuition is. So I, I know a lot about fly fishing, and if I intuit that there's a trout under that rock, there probably is. And if I'm teaching you for the first time and you think there's a trout under that log, there probably isn't. But those things that you're really good at, you can trust your intuition um, you know, that much more on. And you get higher productivity, you get higher, you get individual genius, and then when they make a mistake, we learn from it and hug them rather than yell at them. Because if you treat mistakes wrong, you get people who are working like I'm skiing you know, way safe, way too safely. Can you talk a little bit about air of excitement? And, and you say in your book that you can tell when you walk in the front door of the store whether they have it or they don't. Um, I'm guessing a lot of that has to do with intuition and, and the fact that you've walked into a lot of stores. What do you do when it's not there? You know, some people write about how a, a business, one guy, I can't remember, talks about how, how the business should smell, you know, or how, how it feels, or same thing in a restaurant or a bar, I mean, you can tell, um, and so um, fiction writers write about this, Hemingway might call it a clean, well-lighted place, it's a place where everybody wants to be, uh, you know, and uh, if you're 
driving in a cab in, in New York and there's certain places you just turn your head and you look at because it's crowded, there's people, everybody's, the employees obviously want to be there, the customers want to be there, there's an air of excitement. Um, it's a, it's a, a cool, wonderful, great place to be that's um, joyful and um, we have more than six senses. We can, you know, we can feel this stuff. That's a place that you want to uh, be at. I'm sure uh, Danny Meyer, the New York restaurateur, he's on our board. I love the guy. Uh, you know, he and I enjoy talking about this. It's a, it's the theatrical part of retail. Um, the houseware store and food store Zabar is on Broadway in New York. Has it? You know, particularly in the middle of the day when it's so when it's so crowded. It's so delightful. It's so much fun. I like people with theatrical booming voices and. Um, um, it's a component of uh, the types of things that you have to do to get people into your bricks and mortar store and um, so is by the way um, um, selling solutions rather than items it's it's hard to sell solutions you come in and you say my toy storage area is driving me crazy um, and then 45 minutes later you walk out with 12 items that you're so excited about the salesperson's so fulfilled and we solved your problem that's hard to do over the internet you know, it's, it's easier to sell items, uh, uh, right. you know, online. But um, Air of Excitement, I think, is um, uh, Southwest Airlines has it over a lot of other airlines when you fly them, right? I mean, uh, everybody's just happier and more content. And um, it's good to be there. It's exciting. Um, I, you know, I love uh, Air of Excitement. Fun is okay. Herb Kelleher taught us it's okay to have fun at work. Uh, I walk into stores and ask the store manager, I say, is that all you got? Can't you be more fun than that? And, uh, and what do they say? They try to be more fun. <laughs> Some of them are a lot They're better like, at no. it than others. <laughs> Tom Gardner does that to us a little bit. We're like, isn't it already fun? More fun. Okay, great. Um, so I want to read a, a small quote from the book that I really just, I thought was great. Um, and I just love this quote. Sometimes people ask me, well, if this approach works so well, then why doesn't everyone do it? The answer is simple. Running a business this way is extremely hard work. It requires an open, generous heart, especially from those in top management, who must look from the, for the good in human nature and must truly want everyone around them to succeed. It requires long-term planning, it costs real money in the short run, and it won't work unless you're completely devoted to your core values, even when the pressure grows intense to abandon them. And I just thought that that was so insightful for the tenets of conscious capitalism and the tenets of this book. And you also talk a lot about leadership here. You talk a lot about leadership in there and how important it is for the leaders of the company to have, to use the words love and hug. How wonderful is that? And to have that generous spirit. And I wonder how you make sure that your secession planning for the container store lasts beyond when there is a Tyndall in the leadership position. Yeah. Well, we, um, I sort of, this is the only job, I, I mean, this is my first job out of college, and, you know, I mean, I've done retail my whole life, and if you're in retail long enough, you get to where you know all the retailers, you know, you name them, I know them, you know, I work with them at the National Retail Federation, and I know them, but um, um, I've watched some guys and, and, and women older than me um, do a bad job of succession planning, and build some of the greatest specialty chains and some of the greatest retail uh, and and 
and flounder when it comes to figuring out who's going to secede them. So we're, we're really good at that. That's something that um, I've learned is very, very important. What happens is then the guy retires and the business kind of flounders and then he's, you know, then his life's work, is, you know, and, and so I've seen that over the last uh, uh, many years um, uh, enough to know that, um, uh, so there's a, uh, uh, we've never lost a vice president to the competition. I mean, we have, I think our VP team is the most talented in retail. Uh, the average uh, tenure there is about 16 or 17 years. And um, um, most of them would make a better CEO than me. I really believe in my total heart. They're awesome. They're just great. And uh, they they want me around still, you know. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I hope the I hope Wall Street does after this week, you know. <laughs> but I, I think we're on to uh, something really good here. We have great, uh, uh, Sharon and I want this business to, you know, be here a couple hundred years from now. Um, we spent a good bit of time in Europe. I mean, there's companies there that are like 600 years old. And uh, it would be, um, uh, people, people love this company. They believe in it. Um, you know, we have a, a responsibility to, uh, uh, Sharon and I have a ranch in Colorado, and I don't ever think of myself as owning uh, the ranch. You're just kind of stewards of the land there, you know, for a while. And what's funny is um, we're putting it in a conservation easement so the neighbors, when they, uh, now that's a long story, but they, they know we will take care of that land and that we won't develop it. The way you make money in, in that deal is you chop it into 50-acre parcels and you sell it, but we're making it impossible for it to be divided. So everybody wants us to buy up the whole valley and keep the whole valley in one parcel like that. We're kind of doing that to, to a small extent. And uh, a business is like a family farm. We're very long-term oriented. You know, if everything you do for that family farm keeps the soil keeps getting better and better and better and what you do today helps you 10 years down the road and uh, some people are, are are people that buy companies and you know we're people that grow a company and it is gr like growing a, a family farm it's very satisfying it's fun to do it with people that you love and have great confidence in and so succession planning is something that I think we um, excel at and um, Two more questions. Um, one is that um, holiday season is right around the corner, and I am guessing that's your biggest um, retail time. Actually, the alpha sale in January is even bigger. Even bigger in January. What, mm -hmm. So what is one metric that, um, that you're going to be watching really closely through the holidays and through January and that we should keep an eye on, too? Well... You know, we're like a basketball game. You really don't have to pay attention in the first half. Uh, the fourth quarter is everything. Uh, historically, our fourth quarter has been 60% of our earnings because we have a very big Christmas. And then the January Alpha sale, remember, we own the factory, so we make a really good margin even at 30% off on that product because of that uh, wonderful vertical integration. If we didn't own Alpha, Alpha would be selling for twice what it is in this country, you know, we, that vertical integration. Sometimes that... Uh, um, sometimes vertical integration is a good thing if it's kind of the heart and the lungs of the business because Elf has been our best-selling product since uh, since day one in, in, in 1978. Well, this year we think it's got to be 70% of our earnings <coughs> because, um, you know, like all retailers, there was a lot of weather uh, during the fourth quarter last year. Our fourth quarter goes to the end of February, so it includes all of the Alpha sale. And 
I mean, I kind of like the basketball analogy. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish we could move the alpha sale to the middle of the summer or something so everything wasn't waiting around for the fourth quarter. But um, we're very confident of it. Um, I, I think people are ready for a, um, um, a weather-free Christmas so they can get their Christmas shopping completed this year like they did not do last year. And I think... Um, I think all of the very high level of price promotion that's gone on in the industry this past year um, that we only partly participate in because we are always trying to perfect that balance between volume and gross margin, and our gross margin is just doing great. Um, um, we think we're going to have a great alpha sale because um, I'm afraid the world's kind of training the consumer to wait for something to be on sale. And so, you know, right. so we're, uh, uh, watch it with me, but our fourth quarter is kind of important, just okay. like just like the fourth quarter watching. of a basketball game. <laughs> I, I might also be purchasing, but I will also be watching. Um, so this is more a question that is very personal to me, and it might put you a little bit to the test. As I mentioned, I tripped over a lacrosse stick on my way out of the house today. I have a sporty little seven-year-old. He plays lacrosse and football and basketball and baseball and you name it. What do I need for all of that equipment? Well, I mean, the um, toy storage, um, you know, sports equipment. I mean, there's there's uh, bins and boxes and, and hooks. There's... Uh, I'd say 30 or 40% of the um, store has products that would lend themselves to that type of thing. The, the, take a dairy crate. A dairy crate wasn't intended to be a toy storage uh, organization thing. Or We have uh, these wire leaf burners. They were designed to burn leaves in, but they make great things for big sports toys uh, to keep the pool equipment in or something. And, uh, and they didn't mean to look so beautiful, but they're just gorgeous. And um, so... When you get to toy storage and sports equipment storage, you're usually looking at um, uh, products that have a thousand different uses. Mm -hmm. And then um, you can do it online, but even better is to come in and talk to one of our salespeople who's probably been there for eight years and has done that many, many times. And then if you'll open up to her a little bit, and she's probably got a family at home and has done this too anyway, she's probably a lot like you, uh, you know, uh, hopefully you'll uh, come up with a with a solution with these products that were meant for something else that allows you to do a little dance every time you come in your entryway and you I don't trip over I would love to do that, a so. little dance rather than a fall-on-my-face trip. That's what our business <laughs> is. We're trying to get the customer dance. That's what Man in the Desert, the other foundation principle that we didn't particularly go into, uh, you don't just give the man in the desert a glass of water. You know, you do what, you, you, you fulfill all his needs. You intuit his needs and fulfill the needs. And so... Um, we, we can help you. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, I appreciate you being here. We are going to open it up to questions in the audience. I know that we have um, a member or two here and several employees and analysts, so feel free. It was, it was funny at lunch. We had various, particularly men, in different stages of life, some single, some married. And, and the ones that were married and owned a home we're much better customers than the ones that weren't. You know, that's that's typical. It was very fun to see that. And, Marriage and of it's course, a competitive advantage. And of course, women are usually better customers than men too. So, but yeah. uh, on that note, Kip, uh, to the air of excitement that you're talking about, Sam is proof that when people get in the stores, they love it, and um, they're real excited about everything you guys are doing. But it seems like one of the fastest 
growing channels in retail right now is the online segment. And I wanted to ask, do you think that that does translate where you can actually get customers engaged and get them excited about the container store on something like an online that's not one of the, the 70 stores that you guys have that are physical locations? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's vitally important. And, um, <clears throat> you know, um, uh, like everybody else, multi-channel customer is the most important customer. And, you know, we were one of the first people out with click and pick up. Uh, um, and um, it, click and pick up is kind of fun because, I mean, it goes against everything that we were taught as retailers. It used to be you wanted people to come into the store and stay as long as possible. But now uh, we'll meet you at the curb. The kids can be in the car seat in the back and the engine, in, engine, engine running. And that's a great way to add one visit a year. You know, however, however she wants to do it, that's how you have to, you know, do it. And so we... Um, um, we'll, uh, we're really working hard to try to provide solutions online, and um, that's hard to do. Most retailers don't even want to fool with that. It's just too hard. You sell, it's much easier to sell items online, you know, even, even easier to sell books than shoes. The great thing about Zappos was uh, shoes, or, you know, it's the last thing you would, you, you know, you would think of, but um, uh, we're determined that solutions can be uh, very, very, very successfully sold uh, uh, over the internet, but I don't think very many people are going to want to mess with that. That's what we, after all, do. We sell the hard stuff. Our parents sent us to school, and we came out thinking it was a good idea to sell stuff that nobody else could sell. Elf is a great example, and um, I think solutions over the internet is a, a great example of that, too. Hey, um, At the same time, we're insulated from some of the big online retailers that can't you can't show room or proprietary product and solutions over the internet. It's a little bit of a tough nut to crack. So, Hello. Um, I know we talked this morning. I hate to throw another question at you, but uh, after we spoke this morning, I went up to the radio show where I was recording, and uh, the guys up there were talking about Container Store a little bit, and uh, Jeff Fisher made a, a point that I thought was interesting, and I just thought you might I'd throw it your way. He, he was talking about how the Container Store probably now is starting to compete with the cloud in that a lot of the things that we used to store, like CDs and photos and things like that, are all going digital. Is that uh, impacting you at all, do you think? Is, is that just opening up more shelf space for other things? I thought that was an interesting insight that he had. It, it, it is an interesting idea. That, uh, that type of media storage devices and everything hasn't um, ever been a, a, a significant part, uh, a very significant part of the business, but um, uh, maybe 1% or 2% of the sales come from that area. You know, there's basically 16 departments and there's um, CDs and uh, everything that you would think of that probably 10 years ago was one or 2% of the sales. There's, when you're talking about storing people's lives, there's, um, things change. You know, you go from eight tracks to cassettes to, you know, and there's also new things that are opening up that People didn't need to, to mess with before, but so that's that's probably a one or two percent loss. And then there's others. I'm quickly trying to come up with an example of things that you didn't have to s store that now you know we have to you know we have to store. We do, iPads. Yeah, that you know that type of thing. Mm -hmm. There's uh, there's give and take to that, but uh, you're gonna have me thinking about that one. That's a good point. Hi, Kip. Thanks for uh, taking some time out. I know it's a busy well, week. We like, we like it here. You know, we've all been here several times, and it's, um, uh, it's fun. So 
I mean, we always enjoy it. Um, so I guess one question for you is, you know, you've talked in the past about, you know, retail funk and things like that. How do you... Well, you know, you, that retail funk thing, I think... I know, a, right? A, I think there's a lot of uh, validity there, but boy, that thing got picked up about 800 million times. <laughs> so. Right, don't be... Uh, you know, the sound bites, right? Um, so how do you keep your finger on the pulse of the retail industry, you know, metrics or, or what you read or, or who you talk to, and, and specifically trying to figure out, all right, how, how you know, how's the, mar the rest of the market doing compared to the container store? It's a very unique concept, so I'm sure you have different different way to look at it. Well, uh, <laughs> What was the first part of the question? <laughs> Sorry, it's just just basically, you know, what what do you look what you know, when you say how something you like up? a retail funk, how do you determine that? You know, what what are you looking at? What Well, you know, there's two parts to that. Um, I've talked to a lot of Federal Reserve, you know, regional Federal Reserve chairmen and uh, uh, economists that pay a surprising amount of attention to the economics of the local barber shop or the local toy store or whatever, and the guy that's been there for 40 years, uh, you know, that you can learn a lot by going and, and talking to him and, and finding out whether people are buying more expensive toys or less expensive toys or, um, um, you know, I don't think that's not exactly anecdotal. It's not exactly perfectly scientific metric based, but there are things to be gleaned from that. Um, after 36 years, you learn a lot about how consumers react to your business and how things impact you. Um, after 9-11, we had a, a big nesting uh, thing that shielded us from having much of a downturn there. In fact, uh, people liked the air of excitement, the fact that all of our employees smile and like to help people, and so people would come in, and it was like... A, a, the television program Cheer is a place where everybody knows that people people like being in the stores. They nesting it. They're they're doing stuff at at home. So it's amazing how much you can feel about what you believe is going on in the economy by uh, watching the way your customer reacts to your business for 36 years, and it, it becomes, I believe, highly accurate. You know, is you don't have all the information. No economist has all the information, but I mean, this is, um, um, you know, really, really helpful. On top of that, if you've been doing it for 36 years, you know everybody in the industry. You know, you see them at the trade show. You need, uh, you know, I discovered 20 years ago that I can call anybody and they'll take my call and talk to me. You know, I, I mean, I can call Jim Senegal and he'll talk to me for an hour and a half and give me advice on something I'm wanting advice from. You know, I mean, the, the Costco guy is a guy I just really admire, you know, and, and, um, so I'm fortunate enough to, uh, you know, to know those people. And you um, always have some notion about how people are feeling about um, things, you know, uh, how, how they're feeling about what's going on, uh, consumer psyche or, or, or whatever-wise. Uh, and, you know, I mean, two-thirds of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. And so um, um, we felt like, I felt like, that there was a little bit of a tepid, uh, something or other going on there, and um, you know, I, I I stated that not to excuse our own, uh, you know, uh, not to excuse uh, our comp store sales being slightly lower than we expected, but just to uh, comment that that was going on too. And uh, you know, it's it's different if you're the only one 
who's uh, having a tepid time of comp store sales. I mean, if, if, if the whole marketplace is, that tells you a little bit more uh, uh, also. So I think you just formulate your opinions on that stuff um, um, by experience, um, uh, relationships with the, you know, with the industry. Um, I'm lucky in that I'm uh, uh, the incoming chairman of the National Retail Federation, so I get to talk to all these guys all the time. And I'm actually expected, as uh, in that position, to know something about what's going on in retail. And um, yeah, so there's some thoughts on that. Uh, we have one more question. Thanks. So um, in a corporate culture that, re that relies so much on an air of excitement and making sure everybody is dedicated to delighting the customer, how do you correct it if that ever breaks down? Like whether it's kind of somebody who doesn't buy in sneaking through the hiring process or things are just going bad somewhere or morale is bad somewhere. Like how do you, how do you fix that and make sure that culture stays vibrant? Well, I mean, you know, we've never let anybody off, but we do let people go before lack of productivity or whatever. It's a meritocracy. And uh, um, the most common reason for somebody not to do well in this culture is that they're just not a good cultural fit. They usually leave on their own if they're not a good cultural fit. They think we're just nuts, and they just leave. And, you know. Um, Same here. Yeah. And, you know, you there's some border lines that you can kind of get over the hump uh, sometimes. But, you know, you're not doing them a favor. Um, we were very, very helpful and very, very communicative and very um, safe communication. We can say anything uh, in working through that. And people that leave uh, the container store usually still love the container store. It just wasn't quite right for them. And um, it's important that you have that right because everybody else is working there. And, you know, it needs to be that that bond, that everybody's got their back, uh, that team, uh, that, you know, that culture fit. Um, I, I just think team's about the most beautiful thing there is in life when it's done correctly. I think you all do it really well. I think Whole Foods does it really well. You know, they call them team members for a reason. And I think the container store does it really well. And uh, you can accomplish so much more. You and I can individually accomplish a lot, but as a team, we can accomplish, you know, parabolically more probably make me sound old, but Lennon and McCartney never did anything individually nearly as well as their songwriting and stuff together, I thought. Uh, you know. Kip, thank you so much for being with us today. Again, the book is uncontainable. It's just released, and it is uh, actually a very easy read and for a business book, and I don't, I don't know if anybody out there normally doesn't read business books, but it's very um, well put together, and I really um, appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you. You were so great. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you so much.